Well, good morning, beloved. If you have your Bibles, and I, I hope you do, would you open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we are diving back into 1 Corinthians, uh, which we've entitled this series, The Gospel for Life. If you remember three weeks ago, Brian started us off on this grand text on the resurrection. And part one, today I get the, the privilege of preaching part two, verses 20 through 49, and our brother Jordan will resume, cap off this chapter next week, Lord willing, as we consider the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus because He is raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15. Just to help us get into the context better, I'm going to begin in, in verse 12. And I'm using the New American Standard Bible. Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. And when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily." If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. 
It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Well, surely let us turn to the Lord and ask for His help. Father, we bow our hearts before You now as we've read Your Word. Thus saith the Lord. There is no other authority by which we built our life upon and which governs us, that controls us, It is Your Word alone. And I pray that You would give us grace to clearly see the truth that's there and to by Your Spirit hear the truth with ears of faith and apply it by Your grace. Help me, Lord. We need Your mercy this morning as we, as we want to know You better from this text. Give us eyes for Jesus and Him alone. We trust that You'll do a great work And we praise You that You are the King of kings. Remove all distractions now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you just heard, we have a nice chunk to cover this morning. Good, good long territory. And two things, two big headings, if you could see over this text, I would like to lay lay before you, and we're going to look at, Lord willing, is... Verses 20-34, through 34, we want to consider the resurrection body and the supremacy of God. And then in 35-49, through, through 49, the resurrection body and the image of Christ. Those are, two big, those are the two big headings we want to consider. But from this text, I hope that you're able to see that the resurrection of Christ is fundamental for our life now, but also for the end-time eschatological hope of the resurrection of our physical bodies at the second coming when Christ comes to get His people. But before we dive into 20, I think we need to quickly address some things in verse 12 through 19. just want to point out where Paul hypothetically walks through the consequences for us if Jesus is not raised from the dead. And in quick bullet point form, here they are. If Christ, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ Himself is still dead. We are false witnesses of God. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain and worthless. Christians who have already died have actually perished. We are to be pitied above all men and we are still in our sins. This drives Paul to say in verse 20, emphatically, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Notice the confidence that Paul has. There's no questioning or doubt in his mind that Jesus is alive. And because this is true, all the hypothetical considerations above of a non-resurrection are not true. But instead, Christ is not dead. We are true witnesses of God. Our preaching is profitable. Our faith is valuable and necessary. Christians who have died have not perished, but they are with God. We are to be respected above all men. And, praise the Lord, we are not still in our sins. Because He's been raised from the dead, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
you notice in these verses 21 through 22, there's a contrast between two men. One man, Adam, the other man, Christ. The first man, Adam, says, By him came death, and all have sinned. The second man, Christ, by him comes the resurrection of the dead, which is life, not death. And through him all are made alive. What Paul's given us here is a contrast of representatives. Adam, the head of the old creation, represents all who follow after him and his likeness, which is all of us, all humanity. Christ, the head of the new creation, represents all who follow after him. Those who follow him are Christians, believers who are born again. Now, many would use this verse to point out and say, see, look at here, Paul believed in universalism. All men are saved. Just like all who are in Christ, who, I mean, just like all who are in Adam, all are in Christ to be made alive. But, keep reading, he clarifies himself in the next verse in 23 when he says, each in his own order, Christ is raised. After that, those who are Christ at His coming. So, the all that will be made alive is clarified by this phrase, those who are Christ at His coming. He's made that quite clear that not all belong to Christ. We know that. And that only those who are joined to Him by faith will be raised. This is not universalism as many would like to point to. For all who are in Adam die. So all who are in Christ will be made alive. This is familiar language if you're, if you're aware of Romans chapter 5. We're going to turn there and read a section of that glorious chapter where Paul is breaking down a little more, explaining this contrast of two men. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Hear this language. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise Him. So when we see the collective detrimental effects of Adam's sin, which is spread to all of us, we can easily get despaired or discouraged or downcast. But, I believe Paul is setting us up for the glorious, majestic reality of what the second man, Jesus, has done for all who are in Him. What Christ has done for those who are in Him infinitely outweighs all that Adam did for all who are in Him. There is no comparison the question is, are you united to Adam or united to Christ? Now, all of us are born bound to Adam. But Christ 
was born as a man to set us free from this bondage to him. And by his death and resurrection, we can experience the grace to turn from sin and by faith be bound to Jesus, resulting in eternal life and the resurrection of our bodies. But notice there's a particular divinely designed order to our resurrection. It's not just random. Just like the first creation had a particular order, six days, so does this second new creation. Verse 23. The end of verse 22. In Christ all will be made alive. 23. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end. Notice this word, firstfruits. It's an, it's an agricultural term referring to the first crop of a grain harvest that would reveal the nature and quality of the rest of the crops that would later be harvested. And we first see this term in the festivals of Israel in the Old Testament as they worshipped Yahweh. The Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest is what it was celebrated as is when God's, they celebrated God's gracious provision for His people. They gave Him, offered to Him the first fruit of their crops as a thankful act of worship and they expected to receive a full harvest of the same kind and quality. This first fruit of a crop, it produced an expectation. And so because of the first crop, it was promised or guaranteed that more would come. Christ has been raised. Amen. But is He the only one to be raised? Not according to our text. Not according to Paul. His whole argument in this chapter is him proving that the reality of our resurrection as believers is established, is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Christ raised from the dead guarantees that those who belong to Him will also be raised from the dead following Him, Jesus, as the first fruit of the full harvest of believers. See, this is why Christ is elsewhere called the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.18, Revelation 1.5. Elsewhere in, this, in our text, 1 Corinthians, in this letter, 1 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. In 2 Corinthians, to this same people, he says, Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Romans 6.5, Paul again says, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. You hear how we'll be like Him as He is raised? Romans 8.11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Do you notice the corporate nature of this resurrection? Christ raises, then His people follow. He doesn't raise in isolation. It's connected with His people. We are eternally attached to Him in every aspect of His person. How gracious of Him to share such an amazing gift of life with us. Following this divine order of events, we see Christ is raised, believers are raised, and then the end. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, we, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you won't grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you hear similar order to this resurrection? 
He says, the end, verse 24, then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So the Son, after defeating all of His enemies, the last one being death, rightfully hands the fullness of His reign to the Father so that the Father gets all the glory. Now we're going to see similar words a few verses down, but first I want to consider three consequences that are evident here of Christ's parousia or Christ's coming. That's the word at the end of 23. Those who are Christ at His coming, that word coming is parousia. Three consequences. Number one, all saints are raised. Number two, all foreign ruler, authority, and power is abolished. Number three, death itself is abolished. We've already considered how saints are raised Let's look at how foreign rulers and authorities are going to be destroyed or abolished. This word abolished means to render inactive or to render inoperative. Every other so-called king is a false ruler, a phony to the eternal king. And each one must finally be dethroned so that all will see the most high ruler over all who has always existed and will always reign unchallenged. His name is Jesus. See, faith in Christ's resurrection, He gives us hope that all evil will truly be overcome. All the corrupt, unjust rulers or governments that have propped themselves up through the ages will not be allowed to remain in any oppressive influence any longer. But they'll be defeated by the wrath of the Lamb. If you want to know more about this, pick up and read Revelation and see how Jesus conquers. All death will be abolished. This same word abolished is used in verse 24 to render inactive. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. How does Paul know that death is conquered? Well, by proof of Christ's resurrection. He didn't stay in the tomb. He came out declaring to all that He has the keys of death. And the power to exterminate death itself, not the other way around. Romans 6, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has, is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. But not only is Christ's resurrection proof that death is overturned. So will our resurrection prove that. Because, again, when we, when we rise, it'll be proof that it couldn't keep us in the grave either because of our union to Him. Because when we rise, we'll be like our Messiah who overcame death. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He, he, Jesus, likewise shared in their humanity. Listen to this. So that through death, He could destroy the one who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. And set free those who were held in slavery all of their lives by fear of death. Revelation 20, 21, the end of that. We see death has no place in the New Jerusalem. It'll be cast into the lake of fire. We won't have to fear it any longer, but the truth is, you don't have to fear it now. Because Christ has vanquished the totality of death's effect to cause fear, death has no sway over us. We don't have to fear death because Christ overcame it on our behalf, thereby giving us Victory over it as well. You heard him in Hebrews. says we're no longer slaves to it, but you're set free. So I ask you, believer, are you living in that freedom? I know that many of us, many of you are bearing a weight of suffering, pain, turmoil, sorrow. Maybe it's heart disease or chronic illness. Some sort of cancer or Alzheimer's disease and death seems to be peeking around the corner. 
staring you down. Guess what? You don't have to fall prey to its false threats. To the believer, there is no threat because Christ has defeated and disarmed death. And in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, still rings true today that not even death can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can overcome and persevere practically in this life with joy in suffering, having the surety knowing that your Savior loves you dearly and that He's with you always. For all things are under the sovereign control and rule of our God. Hear this from Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, as he comments on this text. He says, The resurrection of Christ has determined our existence for all time and eternity. We do not merely live out our length of days and then have the hope of resurrection as an addendum. Rather, as Paul makes plain in this passage, Christ's resurrection has set in motion a chain of inexorable events that absolutely determines our present and our future. Christ is the firstfruits of those who are His who will be raised at His coming and that ought to both reform the way we currently live and reshape our worship. Amen. Well, moving on, verse 25. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. We'll stop there in verse 27. You notice this phrase, under His feet. In the Old Testament, this symbolized conquering one's enemies. Hear this from David in 2 Samuel as the Lord was delivering him from his enemies, from specifically Saul. He says, I have devoured them and shattered them so that they did not rise, and they fell under my feet. You hear that? Confident conquering language. Under my feet. We have there here in this text an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1, and we have a direct quote from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 110, verse 1 says that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What is a footstool? Something you prop your feet on. It's underneath the feet. This symbolizes supreme dominion of Christ. Verse 27, this is a quotation of Psalm 8.6, which says, You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. Now, originally this psalm is about the, the glory of the Lord and man's dignity. As humanity was originally created and designed in the garden to rule and reign as God's vice regents in the garden over all creatures. Now many say that this is a commentary, this Psalm chapter 8 is a commentary on Genesis 1, 26-30. But you see what Paul's done here. Paul has taken it, he's interpreted this Psalm Christologically, pointing to the Messiah. Saying that God's image bearer, Jesus, who rules and reigns as the ideal human in perfect wisdom and righteousness, therefore conquers the powers of evil. He fulfills God's original intention for humanity. Therefore, all things are under His feet. This same language is used in Ephesians 1.22 and it says that God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 27, But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. I know many of you are saying, whoa, 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 slow down, Paul. All this subjection has gotten me confused. What, what is going on here? Well, this word subjected or subjection is used, accounted six different times in these two verses. It can all, this word also means subordinate. The New Living Translation phrases it this way, For the Scriptures say... God has put all things under His authority. Of course, when it says all things are under His authority, that does not include God Himself who gave Christ His authority. 
Then, when all things are under His authority, the Son will put Himself under God's authority so that God who gave His Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. Now, it might sound odd to hear at the end Christ will be subjected to God. I mean, is this some sort of contradiction in Paul's Christology here? Well, let's look at other passages quickly in 1 Corinthians where Paul emphasizes the supremacy of God at play. In chapter 118, 130, and 2.5, Paul combines, attaches the power of God to us who are being saved by the word of the cross. It says it's the power of God that you're in Christ Jesus and it's your faith that rests on the power of God. So all three of those verses connected to God's power. In chapter 2, 5, Paul says your faith rests on the power of God. Sorry, I've already said that. In 3, 6-9, through 9, God causes growth in the church. In 3.23, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Hear that? Similar language? Christ belongs to God. In 8.6, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. In 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. In 11.3, the head of Christ is God. Similar language again. In 11.12, all things originate from God. And at the end of this chapter, 15, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is clear from 1 Corinthians in the entire Bible is the unmatched supremacy that God is all in all. Meaning that He fulfills all of His purposes by His wisdom and power for His own glory. So that He is preeminent over all things, in all places, at all times. Hallelujah! But... What about Christ? The Messiah. Is He not preeminent over all things, as Colossians says? Well, what may at first sound confusing in our text is actually a glorious harmony of ruling and reigning that the Father and the Son joyfully share together and at the same time attribute all ultimate glory to God the Father. Soli Deo Gloria. But, again, what about Soli Deo Christi? All glory be to Christ. We sing that here, right? Yes. All glory be to Christ. And all glory be to God. Exactly. That's the beauty of the triune majesty. They are in essence the same, but functionally fulfilling different roles. And in our context, chapter 15, it focuses on the humanity of Jesus and His bodily resurrection. So He is now forever the God-man. And as such, He functions in this subordinate role to the Father. But, hear this, it doesn't in any way diminish His undiluted divinity. Jesus Himself says multiple times in the Gospels how the Father gave Him this authority to rule as His divine human on earth. Matthew eleven twenty seven, Matthew 28, 18. But hear this from John 17. Glorious in His prayer to the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. Does He end there? Nope. Why glorify Your Son? So that the Son may glorify You. That's the heart cry of Jesus as a man on earth. To glory and delight in God being supreme in His praises and in His love. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, is in no way jealous that the Father gets all the glory. That's what He wanted and desired. So we have here this this both-and language as we see the functionality of Jesus submitting to the Father in all things, in His prayer, in His suffering, in His death. When He says, Lord, not my will, but Yours, He's submitting. We see that. Philippians 2, we're we're, we're familiar with how the name of Jesus, at His name every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Again, it doesn't end. Paul says, to the glory of God the Father. So, as we've seen, all created things, all rulers and reigns, all creation is subjected to the Son. 
But is God created? No. So he's definitely not subjected to the Son. So in the end, King Jesus gladly submits his reign to his Father, who is all in all. And this is Paul focusing on the supremacy of God in all things, but especially in our chapter, the resurrection. The resurrection life that the king possesses overcomes sin and death completely. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, so it's only right that He gets all the praise and the honor. He's the one whose divine wisdom and power accomplished all of this. And, because, and since He raised Christ, He also raises us. And this shows us that God's ultimate authority, Paul's saying, will be visibly established and acknowledged by all with no competitors so that He unmistakably reigns and receives ultimate praise and worship. Well, if we consider verses 29 through 34, Paul's returning to some if statements as he did in verses 12 through 19. And he uses two experiential arguments for the resurrection. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Okay, that's strange, Paul. Baptized for the dead? What are you, what are you talking about? One commentator says this verse is the most hotly disputed issue in the whole epistle. Well, it's definitely not clear exactly what Paul's referring to, but it seems to be some strange idea of baptizing for the dead, as he says. So what does Paul mean by this phrase? Well, many things. Paul refers to some sort of vicarious baptism that's happening on behalf of dead persons. The Corinthians had some who, friends or family who had died early. Not early, but had died and maybe didn't have an opportunity to be baptized. And so their thinking was, well, let me be baptized on their behalf. They're dead. Hopefully... It can apply to them. That's one example. And if this is true, note that Paul doesn't criticize or condone their practice. He simply uses it as an illustration to prove the fact of the resurrection. Another view is to understand this phrase, the dead, to be a metaphor referring to those who are baptized. We know that baptism... Uh, is connected to a death and a resurrection. Colossians 2.12 says, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him, with Jesus, through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. But if there's no resurrection, then the baptism's pointless, right? There's no true meaning behind it. Now, there are other interpretations which we don't have time to dive into, and that's not the focus of this text. All I will say is that it, it just appears that this... It's something that those in the church were practicing. Seems strange to us, but again, Paul uses it as an example that they would be aware of to connect them to this argument that if the dead aren't raised, what you're doing is, is pointless. His second personal example, verses 30-32, he says, Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? So he's laying out before the people, which I'm sure they were aware of, this dangerous life that Paul has adopted. He says, I'm in danger every hour. I die every day. I have fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, the majority of people would agree that this wild beast that he's fighting is... Um, is Figurative speech referring to being in conflict with some forceful opposition. And this makes sense in light of Old Testament language. Often in the Old Testament, advers adversaries are depicted as fierce animals. I'll only read one text from Psalm 22, which is, in, uh, is interpreted as Jesus' life. If you go through and read that, you see how that applies to Jesus. But he says in verses 12-13, to Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open their mouth wide at me as a ravening and roaring lion. Other verses in the Psalm 35, 17, 57.4 and 58.6 are just some examples. What Paul's doing is he's pointing to a sacrificial lifestyle. All that Paul does is in an expectation of a future resurrection hoping in something beyond the grave. But he says, if none of this is true, if the resurrection's not reality, why am I personally risking my life 
on these vain pursuits. In the words of Isaiah 22, 13, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The end of verse 32. Isaiah's context concerns God's judgment on His people and His people's refusal to repent. So, this leads Paul to warn the church of their loose living and the necessity to repent of faulty beliefs. Hear him. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So he's warning them of a deception that's connected to certain relationships or fellowships that the people of Corinth had. We're not given much information, but possibly alludes again their acquaintances being some who doubted the resurrection, who didn't hold the same fundamental doctrine of faith. And Paul calls the, the Christians there. He calls, he, he calls and labels these people bad company. Because it has resulted in bad fruit from the Corinthians' lifestyle. He's saying it'll produce an immoral lifestyle not seriously focused on living by resurrection power. Some may say if the resurrection is a fluke or a phony, then why live in such self-denying ways? Instead, man, let's pursue the American dream. Let's eat, drink, let's party because we're going to die anyways. It doesn't matter. And Paul says, whoa, 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 hold up. (laughs) It absolutely matters the way you live your life. But this life, the people you're hanging around, those are lives that, that what it looks like for people who have no hope, who have no motivation of a resurrected life. So don't fall in line with them. Paul gets pretty serious here. He warns them not to be led astray by such men and such teaching. And he calls in verse 34 to be sober-minded. And he calls them to repentance He's saying, come to your senses. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Enough with loose living apart from sound doctrine. This way of life demonstrates a lack of knowledge of God. You hear the phrase, you see the phrase, some of you have no knowledge of God in the verse 34. That's where this life leads to. Therefore, those who do have a true knowledge of God and of the Scriptures ought to live a life of sobriety and repentance as a new creation work of God. And we will see the glorification of our salvation when Christ returns. So is Paul just being, is Paul being harsh here? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, he also says there that I'm writing to shame you. As he says at the end of verse 34, I speak this to your shame. But why would Paul do this? Why does he want to shame them? Well, again, it's a way that he's trying to wake them up. Grab them by the shoulders and say, wake up! He's trying to get their attention. I don't care if I personally offend you right now. He wants to shock them into considering the weight of what he's teaching and of how they're living. And to start applying right behavior and faith towards God. Well, that's a look at the resurrection body and the supremacy of God. Let's now consider the resurrection body and the image of Christ. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? So here comes the skeptic stepping up to the mic to ask Brother Paul questions concerning the resurrection. Simple, normal questions. Well, how are they raised, Paul? I mean, what kind of body will they have? I mean, how can a dead, rotting corpse come back to life? These questions seem pretty harmless, right? But Paul's response shows that he discerned a foolish unbelief attached to these questions. What does he say? Verse 36. You fool! Now let's just stop there. He tells them, you're without reason. You're senseless, reckless, inconsiderate thinkers. See, Paul knew the Old Testament described the fool as one who did not believe in God and did not live a life as though God existed. Psalm 14. He's saying these clowns are falling, are failing to take into account the creative power of God to raise dead men to life. Now, Jesus himself faced skeptics of his day concerning the resurrection, which you can read in Matthew 22. And so Paul isn't alone here. 
And what we have as we move along is a series of illustrations of God's power in creation elements. 37, verses 37 to 38. Paul's saying that just like seeds, seeds, you take a seed and you plant it in the earth, it gets transformed into something else as it sprouts. So also, a human corpse, as it's buried in the earth, can be transformed into something else as it is raised by the power of God. Now, if you take a seed and you look at it, it itself may look like a dead thing. As it's buried, it's underground, it's unseen, but something is happening in the unseen. God is giving it a body as He wished. Verse 38, a transformation is occurring within this plant. And the same transformation which is brought about by the sovereign power of God will transform our bodies as well. Verse 39-41, through 41, the second example, Paul's considering earthly and heavenly created realms. He mentions men, there are beasts, birds, fish, and each of these belong to the realm of the earth. On the ground. Then he says the sun, the moon, the stars, they belong to a different realm, the heavenly realm. And he's comparing things below to things above. And he's pointing out how God has purposefully made each of them different. And they each have a particular splendor about them because of God's creativity. And so, he's saying, so will our earthly bodies as they are compared to the resurrected bodies. Paul's comparing old creation elements to new creation elements. And each are brought about by the sovereign, creative God who does exactly as He wills. Verse 42-44, through I know I'm paraphrasing here, but Paul returns to agricultural language to demonstrate that our raised bodies will be of a different nature than our earthly ones. We have a comparison of seeds that are sown Versus seeds that are raised, that are bloomed. Now all would agree, if you compare the two, a seed is vastly different from a crop that is bloomed from that seed. They're, they're, they're not the same thing. They have undergone this radical metamorphosis, this transformation. And this metaphor Paul uses to help show the reality of a, the same kind of transformation that believers undergo by God's design from our dead bodies to resurrected spiritual bodies. Let's, let's see the contrast between what is and what will be in the future. Verses 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. That word perishable can also mean incorruption. We're sown, our bodies are sown in corruption. It is raised an imperishable body or raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. See, the body sown is identified with earthly features. And the body raised is described with spiritual features. Now, the spiritual body is not a floating ghost-like creature. Paul still believes in a physical dimension to the resurrected body. He's aware of Christ's body when He raised from the dead. As He revealed Himself to many, many followers on earth. Rather, Paul means a body animated and energized by the Holy Spirit, which now lives in a totally new realm. See, what Paul wants us to understand is that God's power is able to radically reconstruct all that we can conceive of what's true about our life here on earth. There's more to just what we can physically see, and he's trying to help them see that. That the nature of our resurrected bodies is no small matter. It is full of imperishable, incorruptible qualities. There's a glory, a splendor about us. There's a power that's connected to it. And it's all in the spiritual realm controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this is all true because of the second man. Notice the comparison again between two men. Adam and Christ. Verse 45. So also, it's written that the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So if we look at one man, Adam was connected to him. He's a living soul. 
He's from the earth, a man of dust. He's pointing back to Genesis chapter 2 in the original creative narrative of humanity showing where we come from. He's from the dust of the earth. Notice that it says, became a soul. It's outside of Himself. Versus Christ, the last Adam, it's referring to Christ, became a life-giving Spirit. This last man, a life-giving Spirit, means that He possesses the life within Him. Unlike Adam, life was breathed into Him from the outside. Christ possesses this. And it says that He's from heaven, which identifies Him as coming from the divine and eternal realm. Now, some would say this could also refer, this term spiritual, refer to the Holy Spirit by whom the life that He provides comes. As Romans 8.11 points out, which we've already seen, the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. He, this same Spirit will give the same quality of life to your mortal bodies. Again, these two men are set up as representative heads. And they're passing on their characteristics to those who belong to Him. Those in Adam bear His characteristics of dust, of sin, and that's all of us. Those in Christ bear His characteristics, which will result in a resurrected new creation life. And that's only for believers. Christ Himself, He has the nature of that which is imperishable, of incorruptible, of full of glory. He's full of power. Therefore, He gives us these same bodies because remember... He is the first fruit of what the rest of the crop will be like. We will be like Him in nature and in quality. Here, Philippians 3, 20-21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. There it is were made like Him by the exertion of the power that He, Jesus, has even to subject all things to Himself. He's able to make us like Him. In verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This word bear means to be in a particular state or condition. It also referred to uh, reference for a clothing, wearing something. And so just as we reflect the earthly man, Adam, in our sinfulness. We shall reflect the heavenly man, Jesus, in His likeness. In Grace Church, this is our hope. Believers, this is our hope. Bearing the image of Christ perfectly. We're born bearing the image of Adam, and this provides no comfort. Only condemnation because of our sin. But those who belong to Christ bear the image of the heavenly Man, and this is the goal of our lives. But it starts now. Culminating in the future at when we are made like Him in a way that cannot be improved upon. Many of us want to improve the way our bodies are now. Guess what? You won't even desire that when we're finally made like Him. There'll be no fault in it, no reason to try to be made better. We'll be fully like Him. It's true, the sanctification process that we're experiencing now is hard and difficult and it's growing. It's a long-term process. The seed that, that is sown grows though. It grows as we nourish ourselves with the water of the Word in the community garden as believers. But there's a glorification that awaits us which occurs when we are raised with Him. Our sanctification, which is our Christ-likeness, will be complete. We'll finally be fully free from sin and death. No longer affected by death's grip. So this bodily resurrection of the saints, would any of this be novel material for Paul and first, Corinthian Christians, first century Christians? Well, there is the concept of this eschatological resurrection of believers found in Daniel. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and it's probably the clearest Old Testament text that I could find. And it reads this way, Many of those who are asleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. 
And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. So this wasn't necessarily new for Paul. Well, what about unbelievers? It's quite possible there are some here today that don't value Jesus as your supreme treasure. You don't love Him at all. You care less about Him. So I ask, what does the future hold for you? Well, did you hear what Paul says in this chapter about you? Did you see it? What was that? Anybody? That's right. Nothing. And that's telling in and of itself. The reason is because those outside of Christ have no hope of being raised to everlasting life and dwelling with God forever. You have none. But the Bible's not silent on this matter. What happens to you, unbeliever? Those who are outside of Christ, we've already seen Daniel 12.2. He says that others are raised to disgrace and everlasting judgment. Jesus said in John 5 that an hour's coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, but those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And to quote Paul in Acts 24.14, he says, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. See, the only thing that awaits you Unbeliever, outside of Christ, is judgment and condemnation. No hope whatsoever. No peace. No satisfaction. No life. And this is why Paul is silent on this matter. I believe in 1 Corinthians 15. Because this is concerning the glory of believers in their resurrection with Jesus. But you have no part with Him. But you can Yes, you can. If you would turn from your sins today and believe in Jesus. Cast all of your hope, all of your dependence and trust on this man by faith. So a couple of points. What does this all mean for us today? Much could be said, but I want to just leave you with two. Number one, if you are in Christ, He is your representative head before the Father. Because He's risen and alive, so will you rise and be alive eternally with Him. What's true of Him, in a sense, is true of you. Save His divinity. So take joy in this. Set your hope on Him. Transfer all your burdens onto Him. Find all your satisfaction in Him. He will not disappoint you. He's accomplished all that's required to complete your salvation. So rest in him. Secondly, our aim now, which is looking to Jesus, will indefinitely result in our goal, which is looking like Jesus, then when He comes. I'll say that again. Our aim now, looking like Jesus, will definitely result in our goal then, which is looking like Jesus when He comes. Verse 49, we will bear the image of the heavenly. What else does this mean? But that we will bear the image of Jesus. We'll be like Him. If you're not striving, though, to be like Christ now, what makes you think you're going to be like Him then? It simply will not happen. But if you fix the eyes of your heart of faith, Upon such a glorious God-man, raised from the dead God-man, sitting at the right hand of the Father God-man, and returning to gather His elect God-man, then I promise you, by the authority of this infallible Word, you will be made more like Him. Now, in this life, but most assuredly, when He returns. So Christian, you're alive. You are alive. Victory over sin and death is destroyed completely because of our Messiah. Praise God you are alive. So church, let's live like it. Let's live like it by His grace. And I'll close with words from 1 John 3, 2 that my brother Stephen Chipman shared with me just last night. Hear this. Hear this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like 
him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what glorious truths from your word that you've been so kind to give to us through the Apostle Paul as he has written to stir our faith to animate us to be passionate about living a life that honors You, that glorifies You. As we see ourselves united to Christ, not apart from Christ. So many of us try to live life apart from Him, and that's damning, oh God. Help us to see who we truly are as Your children by identifying with the second man. Consider ourselves dead to the first man. We are now bound to Jesus now and forevermore. So help us to see all that is ours as a result of Him by His merit. And may we hope in Him and Him alone to bring us to You fully. When He he returns, oh, we'll get to see Him. We'll have eyes to see Him and not be destroyed because of faith that You've given us. It's all by Your grace, oh God. And may we live in light of this truth and this hope now that may this motivate us and fuel us to live another day, even if today's our last day. May we live it to the fullest with all that we can, loving You with all of our hearts and all of our soul and all of our mind. And we know that we'll do it by Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.